Welcome to Jack Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak, an assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And the purpose of today's event is to provide an open forum for for healthcare professionals and athletic trainers to discuss the recently published understanding of athletic trainers' role in the return to learn process at National Collegiate Athletic Association Division One and Division Two institutions. Today, I'm joined by two of the authors, Dr. Lacey Runyon from Carroll University and Dr. Lindsay Eberman from Indiana State University. I also have a guest co-host today, Mr. Blaze Criley. He's the head athletic trainer at Missouri State University and the chair of the NATA's Young Professionals Committee. In order to make today work as smoothly as possible, we ask that you submit questions on our Facebook Live comment section or as a tweet at JAT underscore NATA using the hashtag, hashtag Jack Chat, all one word. And as another special consideration for today's broadcast, we might have a little bit of issues because as everybody knows, the internet is being stressed right now. So at this point, I would love to introduce... Lacey, Lindsay, and Blaze, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. So the first thing that I want to get into is give me a little bit of understanding of why you chose to focus on Division One and uh, Division Three and Division Two institutions. Absolutely. Um, so a lot of the research related to Return to Learn um, that we were able to find is heavily focused either on secondary school settings, so high school settings, or um, there is some stuff out there about Division I settings. Um, and as we got to looking at it, what we found is that there's different resources available um, to the different settings. And what we were seeing was that um, the Division II and Division Three settings seem to have less staff to manage this type of thing, um, less access to um, very strongly diversified healthcare uh, providers to take part in this, and then um, even less financial resources for how they can make this all work together. And Blaze, as a head athletic trainer at a D2 institution yourself, what kind of struggles have you had with implementing a return to learn program? Um, I think the biggest ones that we really do struggle with is just like uh, Lacey said, um, we just don't have that much staff. We're all working with multiple teams with multiple athletes at the same time. <clears throat> and sometimes trying to follow up on classroom work and return to learn is just kind of on the back burner. So uh, having a policy in place is something that's really important to help uh, facilitate that return to learn to student athletes. Uh, when you may not have the resources available like Division I uh, athletic programs. And Lacey, you're currently at a D3 institution, correct? That's correct. How has your experience in the D3 level influenced the creation of the study? So um, I actually am newer to Carol, so I'm just working on, uh, this is my, I'm starting my third year here. Um, but when I created this, uh, when we came up with this project, I was actually at a Division II institution, a really small one um, in Indiana. And what we were seeing was they had two athletic trainers, for 15 sports, um, there is a real disconnect between academics and athletics, mm -hmm. where the athletic trainers were actually new to the institution. Um, and so just knowing who their stakeholders were and reaching out to was really difficult for them. And, and the bad news with all that is, is that the people who were 
suffering was the student athletes who needed this support um, going back to the classroom, even post any injury, not even just concussion. So um, they wanted to do more. So in my, uh, I had the ability to work very closely with them. And actually before going to uh, moving into higher education, I actually worked for the same company as them. So we were colleagues before we were colleagues at the institution. And so they wanted the resources, they wanted help with this, but they just didn't know where to start. And uh, being somebody who's very passionate about education, I felt like this was a good place for me. I've, I've had the opportunity to be a clinician, um, but this was me as an educator, but I could still serve both populations and help be that liaison through this research. Great. So give me a little bit of an overview of what the research question was in this paper. I think realistically, we were just trying to see what athletic trainers were being asked to do um, in regards to return to learn process. Um, Not all athletic trainers feel like they have all of this background in academic accommodations and how this works. And so I think our research question was really just what is the athletic trainer's role um, from their perspective? We want to reach out to these people and find out what are they actually doing? um, What role are they serving as they develop these policies? Great. Lindsay, can you give us an overview of how you went into developing the questions to to answer your research question? Absolutely. I think um, kind of just to give a tiny bit of a background, Lacey was a doctoral student in our program, and and we really try to um, offer people the opportunity to explore research areas that are of interest to them. So as I often make the disclaimer, I am not a concussion researcher. So when she brought the idea to me, it took a little bit of convincing in terms of she really had to demonstrate the expertise relative to concussion and return to learn where I could really serve to support the project from uh, the study of policy development, policy implementation, and then my experience relative to qualitative research. So to develop the questions, um, what we did was explore all of the current literature relative to return to learn. And as Lacey mentioned, there had been previous studies in secondary school and um, division one that gave a good perspective. And uh, what we did was leaned on one of our colleagues, uh, Kaylee Welch-Bacon, who had done some previous research relative to return to learn. So we looked at previous interview scripts and adapted them to meet the needs of our project. What we wanted to do was try to really elevate the project and make it unique, um, not just by setting to Division II, Division III, but also to the questions we were asking. So the modifications really came from what the athletic trainer's role was in policy development and how they actually curated the policy. And then we adopted a lot of the other questions relative to policy implementation and how that actually played out with uh, even with an example of a patient and how how that kind of transpired for the athletic trainer. And so that's how we were able to draw from previous literature into this particular project, but also kind of elevate it and make it unique as well. Thank you. And Lacey and Lindsay, what themes emerged from your interview findings? So we had um, five major themes, um, each of which had a couple subsets. So the first uh, theme was approach, and it was just how the institution approached their return to learn policy. Um, Most of them identified that it was going to be an individualized approach, often was going to be facilitated by the athletic trainer, but was going to be based off of available evidence, so best available evidence uh, for those individuals. Um, A second one was collaborative practice. Um, This really got broken down into two categories, one of which was 
those collaborative practice with other healthcare providers. So uh, your physicians, things like that. And then um, even school nurses. So uh, mm-hmm. healthcare on their campuses. And then the other was uh, collaboration outside of healthcare providers. So um, individuals from the academic side of things, whether it's disability services or academic uh, success, things like that. Um, but then also with faculty specifically um, was one of the other collaborative practices that became a resounding um theme in that they had to come through and collaborate, not just with the stakeholders, but specifically with faculty. Um, We also saw a theme of patient advocacy, where they were really looking to make sure that uh, the student was put before the athlete, right? We call them a student athlete. It's in that order for a reason. Um, So we wanted, we saw that come out a lot, that they wanted to make sure that they were able to get back to some of those cognitive activities before back to sport, that that was an important part, um, as well as fairness to all students. Um, there's a couple of questions coming up about what I thought was unique, but we really saw individuals talk about that they wanted this to not just be for the student athletes because concussions don't only happen to athletes. And so that they wanted to be able to, to push this out to all students. Um, there was another theme of institutional autonomy, which I think really came up comes down to each institution has different resources available to them. And so they had to be able to make it um, individualized to their institution and what works for them, right? So what works for Carroll University might not work for Indiana State University and vice versa. Um, And then the last one was barriers. And unfortunately, um, every single person talked about barriers, uh, whether that came um, up front and they were doing well with their policy now, um, but there was just very different barriers that were very individual to each um, school that participated. Great. I'm going to stop you on the barriers part. We'll get into that here in a second. Yes, of but, course. Um, I think Blaze has some questions for you guys. Absolutely. So, Lacey and Lindsay, uh, my, my first question is obviously, you mentioned a few entities that you guys reached out to or that athletic trainers uh, mentioned reaching out to to collaborate. But what common themes came out outside of sports medicine as far as uh, participants? that they reported seeking input from in the development of your return to learn protocols? I think one of the things that's most compelling, and I think uh, uh, like a major recommendation that we would really encourage people to do is reaching out to their faculty athlete representative and uh, faculty and uh, academic units, because those are real partners in this process. I think if there's a real understanding of why, like the why behind um, why academic accommodations need to happen, then people have a, a higher inclination to support the student in that process. And so incorporating faculty and academic units in the, in the conversation will also help us as athletic trainers understand kind of what is reasonable versus what is not reasonable given uh, any particular student's situation. So I would say one of the greatest partners in this process is um, academic affairs, faculty, and academic units, because I really think that it's a true partnership, especially if you look at the it, the theme relative to student before athlete. If everybody at the institution embraces that principle, then that partnership will yield itself as you work the patient through a return to learn process. Go ahead, Kara. Were there any um, were there any creative ways of reaching out to that faculty um, advocate or any anybody else that's not in that sports medicine realm to incorporate them? 
Um, I think most of the time it started out with just a conversation, right? People were putting, uh, athletic trainers were putting themselves out there saying, hey, uh, you know, VP of academic or of academic affairs or reaching out specifically to that uh, faculty athletic repre- uh, representative, FAR is sometimes what you see them. Um, they're putting themselves there and just saying like, we we want to do this, but we're not sure how. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they kind of got their their focus group, if you will, established of who are the key stakeholders who can help us get buy-in across the board. And then we saw some really interesting things come out about how they were choosing to educate faculty and move forward with it. Um, I think there's a lot of different platforms for, um, and also just difficulties, right? Like how do I know how to email the students, professors, and should the athletic trainer be sending those emails or should the academic support services be sending those emails and those things? Um, But some of the interesting things is people developed like video presentations or did presentations to the entire faculty. So most institutions have uh, faculty meetings and we, we as faculty want to have people come in and educate us about things that are important to our students, right? We're all here for the student. Um, And so they chose to actually go in and provide education to um, the faculty itself as at large. Um, And then they also created videos that were for uh, the entire campus population. So um, for all students and faculty and other staff members so that everybody was on the same page, not just faculty, not just staff, but even the students were involved. And I thought some of that was really great. That's a lot of work. Um, but super important. I think the other piece is relative to the theme of institutional autonomy. What we found was there was huge variability in how the return to learn process was triggered. So if a patient has been diagnosed with a concussion, how is that communicated to academic affairs or to a, a particular faculty member? And because there was so much variability, I think that is one of the recommendations we would make is trying to find some consistency in how you execute that at your institution. And that's where some potential creativity and partnerships and collaborations are important. Because I think if the, I mean, I would consider myself an average faculty member. If I received an email indicating that so-and-so needed some academic accommodations and because there's some HIPAA information that, should not be shared with me as a faculty member. If I'm well informed of that process prior to um, prior to the academic year, uh, that that faculty education piece can um, can kind of reduce the resistance and barriers through the process. Great. So we're actually getting some audience questions coming in. And one of them regarding faculty was um, asking about faculty who were non-responsive or not helpful and what strategies were utilized to um, get everybody on board and on the same page. Was Can you guys touch on that? Well, we didn't really have a lot of, I mean, we did have people mention that that was the hardest buy-in was uh, faculty, that oftentimes there was a disconnect between um, the knowledge of the athletic trainer and the knowledge of of a faculty, maybe outside of a a health science field or a field that understands sort of concussion management. And so um, I think one of the key things is is the education component. Um, If you're getting everybody on the same page up front, that can be helpful. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I suppose both, um, the individuals who had sort of had more time to develop their return to learn were saying things like, after we provided education, there was less resistance. Um, So maybe they started the process but didn't provide that educational component up front to all faculty. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they had more resistance from them. And so I think what's really important is um, I don't want anybody to think that there's always this like hard wall between academics and athletics. Um, but I think what's important is that you have to let them know their why. 
Why are we doing this? We're here for them as a student athlete. We want them to be successful in the classroom, outside of the classroom, beyond this injury. And once they have buy-in for that, you know, it's not a free ticket for students to not go to class because they're injured. It's, hey, we want to make sure that we are respecting their injury and their symptoms as they work backward, back into that, and that it's not going to be out of class forever in most cases, um, Mm -hmm. that we have to respect that. So I think helping educate them decrease the resistance. So getting yourself in front of that group is going to be important. I think it goes back to one of the things Lacey said earlier, and some of these programs or some of these athletic trainers talked about how they wanted these policies to be student-wide, so student body-wide. So if you think about that from a buy-in perspective, if a faculty member sees that this is not a quote-unquote only available to student athletes, they might also be more inclined to buy into the process because they believe it's a a resource available to everyone. So I think thinking about uh, creative ways to extend uh, potential uh, return to learn policies for anyone who's been diagnosed with a concussion can certainly help to um, help to get buy-in from faculty as well. I think there's always going to be barriers, potentially unresponsive faculty, um, and sometimes that comes down to really good conversations with academic affairs. So in the event a, a, a student or student athlete uh, has experienced a concussion, having the support from the provost office um, can really help with uh, the overall the overall delivery of the policy. And I think uh, you asked a question earlier, like how do people get in the door and having initial conversations with the faculty athlete representative um, and individuals in academic affairs should definitely be helpful. I think part of the issue is just how we do policy, policy implementation, right? Sometimes we have this impression that the NCAA has bestowed upon us the responsibility to create and implement something. But when that happens, they give us some time to actually do those things. So we need to start with conversations, reach out across the campus to identify people, make sure that we're not creating the policy and implementing them and implementing that without consultation. Because to be fair, most of uh, those of us on the call that are faculty, we simply like to be consulted. And I think that's just a a, a cultural um, characteristic of the academic community. So having conversations with people can really set you up to be more successful in policy implementation. Blaze, in your experience as the head athletic trainer, what have been some things that have been successful or potential barriers for involving faculty in this? Um, I think as far as involving faculty, I, I think it's kind of like Lacey and Lindsay said, it's education and just finding ways to get out in front of faculty members and educate them about it, what uh, about what it is. Uh, the other thing that I that I've noticed is, um, you know, having a uniform documentation system that as far as a faculty member can recognize that when they get this form, it is something that they've seen before and they recognize as something like, hey, this is official or, hey, I've seen this before and I know this is, you know, going towards a concussion and that it has the support of other faculty members. Okay. So um, one of our audience questions is, are there resources available to help establishing this type of policy and procedure at an institution? 
So the NCAA does have um, documents out there. They have a checklist um, and some of them, they're not necessarily uh, division specific, uh, but they have a checklist that can help you start. I think the hardest part for me as I looked at those is, is they just are sort of giving you, they're giving you autonomy, right? They're giving you the ability to make their checklist fit um, to your institution. And so I think that's a great place for people to start um, is to go to the NCAA. They have um, return to learn or concussion management checklists that tell you these are the things you should consider including or that you should include. Um, the other thing I would do is if you have a, a colleague or a friend at another institution who has been working on this, don't, don't do this alone. Um, people are doing this outside of just your institution. And so reach out, be collaborative. I mean, you're going to have to adapt it to your institution, but I don't think that anybody should be feeling like they have to fully reinvent the wheel on their own at their own institution. Um, reach out to somebody if you know they have um, have one at all, right? The first question is, do you have a return to learn policy well documented? Um, and if so, would you mind um, kind of sharing where that's at with me uh, as I work on developing ours or in just um, assessing where you're at with your policy, right? Maybe you have one, you don't feel strongly about it and you just wanna do some policy assessment. Um, where are we at with that? Maybe I could use yours to benchmark ours a little bit and just see where we're at. I think that those are options. I think other potentials are conference-wide policies. So looking at your athletics conference, reaching out to other individuals who, because they're likely to be similarly resourced than you mm-hmm. or as compared to you. So that might be a good place uh, to, to consider development of um, conference-wide kind of guidelines as to what you might want to do. We have lots of discussions about what we would call a chart review. So once you create that policy, sharing it and having somebody peer review it to see if it has the necessary components or the things that the NCAA might be looking for, and also having other people provide input on the clarity of your policy. Sometimes we write policies and they make perfect sense to us, but we really need to make sure that the user use it well. And so having more people look at it and providing peer review can be helpful as well. Great. So Blaze, what were kind of your first steps when you started developing a return to learn policy? The first thing that we looked at is we tried to figure out who were the important stakeholders, who did we need to recruit Mm -hmm. to help develop this and make sure that it had a smooth transition. Uh, Obviously, like um, Lindsay and Lacey said, we reached out to our FAR, faculty uh, athletic uh, representatives. And then we, uh, Missouri at Western, we're pretty lucky. We have a uh, academic support position here. And so um, we kind of identified who was going to be the main person of communication to all the professors and stuff like that. Uh, So we designated them. Uh, as that, but as far as implementing, it was mostly about recruitment and then who are we going to uh, identify as key stakeholders to help us implement this, not only in certain areas, but to reach out to um, all areas of the campus. Thank you. So another audience question is, what was the role of the athlete in this process? What were some of your responses in regard to the athlete? I think that was uh, interesting. It was kind of all over, right? There were some institutions that basically left it to the athlete to go and, you know, they have to go to the academic support to be able to get accommodations through those services. Um, And uh, sometimes they were left to be the main communicator. Um, 
oftentimes those individuals said that that didn't end up working well for them. It led to decreased compliance with faculty and with the student themselves. Um, but for the most part, I think the student was basically the athletic trainer was seeing them most times with concussion based stuff on a daily basis. And so just communicating what their symptoms were, where they were that at in their healing process. Um, and then uh, making sure that they were checking in with the available services, the athletic training staff with academic accommodations, um, keeping their uh, professors uh, informed if that was necessary um, and how that went. So um, like I said, it was a little all over the place in terms of differences, again, institutional autonomy. But um, I think that their role was to be the patient and uh, communicate the best that they could given their circumstance. I think that brings up a really good point, though, Kara, that as you are collecting those stakeholders together and thinking about policy development and barriers to implementation, bringing a student athlete into that focus group and having them contribute to maybe the experiences they've had uh, might provide insight and workarounds that that our student athletes are smarter people and, and they their experiences can inform um the process and so we should maybe consider including them in that stakeholder group so how do your findings compare to similar studies done in the ncaa division one setting and even secondary schools um across the board they were very similar to what the athletic trainer felt that their role was for athletic trainer felt that they were very important to this process because they're the person um, seeing the uh, patient with this injury um, and that they're the person who's probably checking in with them most often. So symptoms of concussion we know don't go linear in fashion, right? They can um, seem like they're getting better and regress based on, you know, stress levels and all types of different things. Um, and so uh, we did see that the athletic trainer felt like they were very important in this role, but also that they needed these other stakeholders from the academic side to help them make um, the most appropriate decisions for the patient. Um, many of them don't feel like they were well versed in what's in a, you know, what's the right academic accommodation for a given time, um, which was very similar across the board with uh, other studies at secondary school setting um, and uh, Division One settings that they felt they were important, but they needed these other groups to be the most successful for the student athlete. And then to counter that, what did you guys find that was unique to your study that you think could translate to a secondary school setting or a division one setting? Um, I think realistically um, the process uh, could be really helpful for those that are either um, in a place where they're trying to revise their return to learn policy or their, um, the way that they work with that, I think that helping them understand who they should reach out to, um, helping them identify those key stakeholders. Um, again, Lindsay's comment about uh, involving a student is so key. When I think about like the committees we have on campus, there's always a student representative. Why wouldn't there be for this? Um, but I think a lot of it can, can fall into play in that you're just trying to create a process that's going to lead to success for your return to learn policy, right? It makes it manageable for the staff on hand. It fits in with the resources at your institution. Um, and it serves the student population as a whole if possible. And I think the other piece is just remembering the role of particularly college and secondary school athletics, that they are technically extracurricular. So the need for patient advocacy as a student first and a student athlete or an athlete second uh, is, is something that we have a responsibility to um, 
to really be the flag bearer for when we think about independent medical care and the likely pressures uh, students feel relative to <clears throat> all injuries and illnesses, but particularly to concussions, we have the responsibility to advocate for them and make sure that we have policies in place that support their safe return to healthy living first and then to sport as well. Uh, Lindsay and Lacey, um, looking at this uh, study during your questions and interviews, did you guys find that there is a mode of communication that most clinicians found to be the most effective as far as reaching out uh, to members uh, as far as dealing with the day-to-day um, symptoms of student-athletes with concussions as far as updating uh, stakeholders on where that uh, student-athlete's progress was in return to learn protocols? For the most part, people were communicating via email. Now, we know that that may not be the most uh, HIPAA compliant, just depending on what platform you're using for that email. Um, but for, for the most part, people were communing in, communicating via email, um, other communication modes through institutions. Uh, I believe one person said they have like a some sort of staff faculty chat at their institution, so they had that ability. Um, but realistically, it was whatever was available, email through their institution. Some of them had specific forms. Um, one institution did have a physician that uh, he triggered their program and then all communication came through him. So then the athletic trainer would communicate to the physician. The physician would communicate um, changes or adaptations via a, a very specific form that would go to uh, the academic support services. So the disability services group on campus. But I think that reminds us what we need to or don't need to include in email communications when we're when we're talking about uh, patients and student athletes. We can have conversation that doesn't include uh, personal health information and work through the return to learn process using email if that if that is most convenient. I think sometimes we add on these additional technologies, uh, portals, and those kinds of things, and they help us. Uh, in some ways, but they can also be particularly cumbersome. So if we can decrease resistance and find ways to effectively communicate, and really, if we write a good policy about what goes in our communications, then we should be making sure that those communications are HIPAA compliant. Yeah, I think like part of your policy should be like email templates that are HIPAA compliant. You know, that's one of the things I'm a clinical education coordinator and I have all these email templates that I send to my preceptors for various things that I know are, you know, HIPAA compliant and things like that. There's no, no reason we couldn't develop templates that we know are HIPAA compliant to be sending back and forth so that we have a simple mode of communication, but we're still getting that information to the appropriate person so the accommodations can be made for the student. Thank you, guys. This provides a huge wealth of information for those that are wanting to start Return to Learn and revise their Return to Learn policies. Um, I have one more audience question that is um, really interesting. And has this Return to Learn model been applied to communication regarding non-concussion injuries? So a student athlete who's been taking out of the classroom due to surgery, et cetera. So I don't think we've seen anything or heard anything that um, that just uh, typical return to learn policies have been applied in that way. But it's certainly a novel approach. And I would strongly suggest having a conversation on our campus communities about that. I think often we're pretty dismissive and don't think about the difficulties uh, patients might have getting to and from their um 
to and from the residence halls or their apartments, uh, even just to come for visits when they have a concussion, they probably shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car to come see us. And so then when they we're asking them to go to campus offices to register and make sure that they've um, you know, completed the necessary paperwork for the return to learn. The same thing might be true if they were on crutches or they're unable to ambulate across our campuses. So it certainly makes a lot of sense to be more patient-centered about how we uh, conduct business and engage um, students in a learning environment like a college campus. Great. So as we wrap up here, I've got one more question for you, Blaze. After reading this manuscript and having this conversation today, what's the first thing you're going to do at your institution? Go back and review my policies and procedures. <laughs> Return to learn. <laughs> what aspect in particular? Uh, I think we're definitely going to look uh, back into uh, kind of like uh, the question I asked is what communication mode is and as a staff, I think we're going to review, hey, how do we communicate uh, through email to keep FERPA and HIPAA compliant without, you know, feel like without the feeling of giving staff and faculty, like we're not giving you all the information. It's we can't give you that information, but we will tell you absolutely whatever we can with, within those regulations. Um, I think the other thing that we're uh, going to look into is also going back and speaking with our staff members on athletics about key stakeholders that we still may need to approach or maybe that we just didn't think about that we need to approach and see what education opportunities we can provide to faculty and staff uh, on a regular basis instead of once a year. Maybe it's at the beginning of the semester we go to staff senate and say, hey, we're just going to give a 10-minute presentation about, hey, this is, you know, our concussion return to one protocol. If you have questions, please ask them now, or here's my contact information. Please reach out. And we want to work together in this and kind of break that athletic risk academic barrier. Great. And Lindsay, what would be your recommendation for somebody uh, to start reviewing today or tomorrow their current or developing a new policy? I really think a collaborative approach and peer review are two key principles. Getting feedback from all of your healthcare stakeholders, but also considering other campus entities. I think campuses are getting smarter, wiser, and more resourced relative to things like behavioral health, academic resources, um, on-campus counseling services, even online counseling services uh, as we move to this new environment that we're in now. Um, so I think, uh, Rethinking what your campus resources are um, and spending some time uh, thinking about who can be a collaborative partner in this and then getting a peer review on your policies. Absolutely. Thank you. Lacey, one final question for you. Um, after going through this process of doing this research, what are you most excited about of things coming out of your findings and where you go forward with this? I think that um, having been a clinician for a long time, I think that just a, a starting point, a foundation point, giving people, uh, you know, maybe they don't feel strongly about theirs, um, giving them something that I feel is really approachable for them to take this on, right? Uh, oftentimes, um, not all of us are experts in documentation and policy development like Lindsay. Um, and so feeling like this is actually feasible for uh, a clinician to take on, I think is sort of 
where I, str- I really wanted this to go and the points of saying like, you can do this, you can take these steps. It doesn't have to be done overnight, but you could do these little things, you know, take the first step and reach out to those stakeholders and then go and do a policy review. I think that, um, the immediate applicability of it is what I think is the most exciting for me, right? This isn't something that it has to be done by someone who maybe you have to have all this education, rocket science type thing, right? This is, you can all do this. Any of us can step right in and start policy development and revision right now. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lindsay and Lacey. Thank you so much for telling and for joining us to talk about your manuscript and for Blaze, my guest co-host. Appreciate it. Um, and just to let everybody else know out there, this manuscript is available free um, as all are all of the Journal of Athletic Trainings offerings and. If anybody out there is interested in being a clinician guest host with me on Jat Chat, please don't be afraid to reach out to us on social media or jatsocialmedia at gmail.com and let me know if you want to be one of my guest hosts. Thank you guys all so much. Everybody have a wonderful day out there. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you so much. And we really want to thank our co-authors as well, Kaylee Welch-Bacon and Elizabeth Neal. They really helped us in executing good qualitative methods and making sure that our findings are as tangible as Lacey mentioned.